Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible.com, the place to get digital audiobooks, information you can listen to, and various other forms of audio entertainment They've got more than 100,000 titles to choose from in a wide range of genres, and you can listen whenever and wherever you want. And hey, everybody, here's an amazing deal. Stop for a moment. Take a deep breath. Think about this. Right now, you can get a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial by going to audiblepodcast.com slash other people. That's right, a free audiobook, a special deal for listeners of this program And to get it, all you've got to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash other people. Go do that. Get your freebie. It's on the house. Fiction, romance, erotica, mysteries, thrillers, sci-fi, fantasy, self-help, children's books. You name it, they have it. You like history? They've got history. Go check out Unbroken, the huge bestseller by Laura Hillenbrand. Or how about The Passage of Power, The Years of Lyndon Johnson, the latest installment of an epic, critically acclaimed biography, by Robert A. Caro. One more time, here's where you go. Audiblepodcast.com slash other people. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, big, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Okay, folks, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is recorded in an apartment building. This is distributed all over the globe. Thank you for being here and tuning into the program. It's great to be with you, as always. Uh, What am I doing right now? I just consumed a lot of food. That is what's happening. That is what's actually happening right here, right now, in this moment. Uh, I'm currently feeling a little bit bloated. I just ate an enormous quantity of carbohydrates, which is now making me a little bit sleepy because uh, as far as I understand it, there tends to be a crash after this kind of excessive intake. So I'm trying to offset uh, the feelings of fatigue by ingesting massive quantities of caffeine, uh, which is then creating a certain inner tension in my chest region near the solar plexus. And uh, I have no idea what's happening to my blood sugar and my heart rate is probably hovering in the 150 range, all of which is causing me to question my judgment and contemplate the psychological underpinnings of overconsumption. Other things uh, I've been contemplating recently, uh, I've been contemplating the notion of help, of helping people, of what that means and how it's done. Uh, Don't ask me why this is on my mind. 
Uh, and specifically, I've been thinking about the idea that you're probably not really helping someone if you're not significantly inconvenienced. And uh, I don't mean to suggest that you have to be uh, like in physical pain or you have to go broke uh, or become injured in order to help someone. Uh, it could just be the expenditure of time that inconveniences you or uh, the delay of some activity that you would rather be engaging in, whatever the case may be. But uh, the point is that to help someone would seem to require the acceptance of inconvenience nine times out of ten. And uh, I guess what I'm saying is that I sort of feel like we'd all be better off if we started inconveniencing ourselves a little bit more, uh, which sounds sort of counterintuitive, but I think it's probably true. Like, people need to be more inconvenienced, not less. Like, I think maybe life is too convenient for people, especially in the Western world. I think we need to be more inconvenienced. Uh, also, uh, I went to a memorial service last night. A friend of mine, uh, actually he was the the, uh, the father of some close friends of mine, uh, but he was also my friend. He passed away, and uh, so I've probably been a little bit more contemplative than normal over the past 24 hours. And uh, with this in mind, I figured I'd share uh, a good thought with you. It comes from the dearly departed. Uh, his name was Roger, an absolutely uh, wonderful guy. And his son, uh, my friend Mookie, uh, was eulogizing him yesterday, and uh, he was telling a story uh, about his childhood. This happened in adolescence, like Mookie was about 15 uh, or thereabouts, and he was going through a rough time, and he was talking to his dad, Roger, and uh, Roger said to him, and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, he said, Mookie, uh, you need to understand that what you do every day, uh, you practice at, and when you practice something, you get better at it, so you damn well better be careful what you practice every day. So that stuck with me. That sounded true. I don't know. Maybe that's just obvious or, or whatever, but uh, it stayed with me. It's stuck in my brain. So I'm sharing it with you, and maybe it will stick in your brain. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So my guest today, I'm very excited about this, is Eric Larson. It's a great honor to have him on the program. Uh, I love his work. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, the most recent of which, In the Garden of Beasts, uh, it hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It remained there uh, for 35 weeks. Uh, it is still there, I think, and it is now available in paperback from Broadway Books. Uh, it's an incredibly gripping work of novelistic history and geopolitical mayhem, and Eric and I are going to talk all about it right now. Well, um, you know, I, w I want to turn to the book. And, yeah. you know, I was reading the uh, 
you know, in, in kind of the, the postscript to the book, right. there's an interesting quote from Christopher Isherwood. That's sort oh, of, you found that. Good, good. Yeah, it's sort of tucked away back there. And I thought it might be a nice way to, uh, to get things rolling by reading it. Sure, um, sure. So, you know, I have it right here in front of me, and I thought I would read it aloud, and then we can get to talking about um, how that kind of encapsulates uh, in the Garden of Beasts. Okay, sure. So here's the quote. I walked across the snowy plain of the Tear Garden, a smashed statue here, a newly planted sapling there, the Brandenburger tour with its red flag flapping against the blue winter sky, and on the horizon, the great ribs of a gutted railway station like the skeleton of a whale. In the morning light, it was all as raw and frank as the voice of history, which tells you not to fool yourself. This can happen to any city, to anyone, to you. Which yeah. is a cheery little thought, <laughs> but also I think a cheery little thought. Well, you know, I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you why I decided to put that um, put that at, in in the book, and and actually at the very very end, it is because when I set out to do the book, I did not set out to flog any kind of agenda or paranoid fantasy, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, I just wanted to find out what it would have been like to have been alive in Berlin in, you know, 33, 34, in those earliest days of, of Hitler's rule. You know, how would I have felt about things? But by the time I was done with the book, um, I found myself thinking, you know, if there is a message here, if there's a message in the book, it's really nicely encapsulated in that quote by Christopher Isherwood. You know, it's just sort of a call to, it's not, I'm not saying that, you know, it's, it's likely to happen here or any, anywhere in particular, but it's really more of a call to, to vigilance, you know? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, you know, it's, 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 it's unbelievable history, you know, yeah. to, to all the details of what happened and the fact that there was this confluence of uh, people who were this psychotic and had this much power right. uh, and were able to convince so many people or at least, uh, you know, um, intimidate them enough to get away with what they were doing so it's yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's beyond belief and i think that's why uh you know as many books have been written about this period of time and about these people it continues to hold uh, a certain fascination and you know people um i don't th i think people can you know okay. continually cannot believe it <laughs> well it really it really does continue to hold a fascination and actually i it, it yeah it kind of uh, much to my relief, frankly, because when I finished this book, I mean, on the eve of publication, I was thinking to myself, you know, it was as though I'd come out of a trance, and I, I thought to myself, you know, who in the world wants to read yet another book about the Third Reich, right? But, uh, you know, the, much to my surprise, and again, like I said, to my relief, uh, the book has found a huge audience, and I'm I'm really surprised. Well, so, and do you have any idea why? I mean, like... Uh you know, I'll conjecture a guess as to why people have embraced your book so you know um, so enthusiastically, and I just think that it has something to do with uh, at least partially the the media environment that we live in and trying to uh, evaluate risk because there's so much of it coming at us. I mean, has that ever struck you that that part of it uh, might have something to do with why people have been? Well, I'll tell you. Yeah, I'll tell you what. Part of part of it, part of it is in, in, indeed that um, an awful lot of readers seem to find a resonance in the book with events today. But now it, it, it depends on the viewpoint what kind of uh, events you you worry about. It, it it tends to travel along the political continuum. People on the far left 
are very concerned about, oh, you know, like the Tea Party. Um, I've talked to a lot of synagogues and the congregations are deeply worried about Iran, you know. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and then at the other extreme, you know, there are those who, believe it or not, um, uh, liken um, Obama to, to Hitler. I mean, they see him as the, as the reincarnation almost of, of Hitler. <laughs> and of course, the, the reason for that, the reason for that is uh, health care. Right. You know? Yeah, of course. But yeah, so so uh but there is that interesting resonance and and um but there's something else also I think that 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 is happening. There's the resonance which may you know may kind of get people intrigued, I don't know. But what also people are bringing to the to the book is something that I had not anticipated. And you know, I should have, um but I didn't. And that is, you know, I I spent all my not all my time. I spent a good deal of effort trying to strip hindsight out of the book, you know, to, to, to really try and reside in the points of view of people alive at the time. Um, but what was, what's been at work in the reading audience is that, of course, everybody has the same sense of hindsight that, that I do. We all know how things turned out. But readers report to me that, you know, it, it, it really heightens the narrative tension when you see Martha, you know, Martha Dodd, um, one of the key characters in William E. Dodd, um, her father, doing things that you know they shouldn't be doing. You know, it's sort of the horror movie effect. You know, you know that, that babysitter is not supposed to go down in the basement, but she does anyway. And that adds an element of suspense to the whole thing. Well, sure. So it's, it's, it's sort of two, two phenomena, but there's definitely, there's definitely a powerful resonance that people are seeing in the book. Yeah, and like, can you talk just a little bit, just so that my listeners can get an understanding of the two principal uh, characters, William and his daughter Martha? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, William E. Dodd is, at this point, he's a 63-year-old, mild-mannered professor of history at the University of Chicago, chairman of the history department. And one day in June of 1933, he gets a telephone call from Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who asks him to become the next ambassador to Germany. Um, this is a surprise to Dodd. It's also a surprise to everybody else because, um, uh, you know, Dodd is the most unlikely ambassadorial candidate. The thing is, what Roosevelt does not tell Dodd, um, and what Dodd therefore does not know until a little bit later, is that Roosevelt had asked an awful lot of other people um, uh, to, to take the job, and they had all turned him down, I think, for fairly obvious reasons. So here's Dodd. He's given, Roosevelt gives him two hours to decide, two hours to decide whether he's going to take the job or not. Dodd ultimately decides that he will, and he brings his family with him, his wife, his uh, his grown son, Bill, and his grown daughter, Martha, who at this point is 24 years old. And she's kind of a wild child, um, and uh, she uh, she arrives in Berlin, and she falls in love with the whole Nazi thing. She finds it intoxicating at first. Wow. Yeah, and she's an interesting character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, she, uh, she, seemed, to, she seemed to kind of view herself... Um, you know, in terms that might not have been justified. <laughs> well, she, yeah, yeah, she, you know, I, th- I, th- I see Martha as actually a, a fundamentally tragic character. I mean, you, you hit exactly on, 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 I think what what her fatal flaw was, and that is that she she always tended to see herself as something bigger and grander and more exciting than her personal capabilities would have, in fact, allowed her to be. So, when it comes to like the origin story of this book and these particular characters in history. Right. Um, you know, th- this is a thing. This is an aspect of your work that I find so interesting. Is that a? It might, you know, I know that it must require just a heck of a lot of research, but also um, your ability and your good instincts when it comes to locating these, uh, you know, sort of hidden narratives in right, in right. history. Like, how did how did this one come about for you? Well, you know, very um, uh, very simply, what well, 
not not so simply, I guess, but you know, the idea process for me is ver- is a very difficult process. It takes me about a year between the time I finish a book and the time I start the next one. And uh, during that time, I'm, I'm I tend to feel very um, very unproductive, and you know, I get I get very ornery. My family hates that period. And my publicist came up with a way to describe it. She refers to it as as when I'm in that dark country of no ideas. <laughs> so I was in that dark country of no ideas one day. This goes oh, God, probably goes back five or six years now. And uh, I just thought, you know, I had to had to do something, so I had to jumpstart my my thinking. So I went to a uh, a big bookstore and I just browsed the history sections just to see what was coming out, what covers appealed to me, what subject areas appealed, you know, that kind of thing, just to start thinking. And I came across a book, um, uh, uh, you know, face out on one shelf that I'd always meant to read. It was The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. So I took it home, really, because I had nothing else to do. I took it home, started reading. And I thought, you know, I, I really love the book. I mean, if one can love a book about the Third Reich. But I had this little sort of miniature epiphany, and that was that the author, William Shire, had actually been there in Berlin starting in uh, starting in 1934. And, you know, he, he would socialize with the people we know today to be these icons of evil, like, like Hermann Goering and Josef Goebbels and Heinrich Himmler and Reinhard Heydrich and so forth. And he would interview Hitler. And, you know, it's all very, very chummy, lots of parties and all that kind of thing. But the, 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 epiphany, the epiphany I had was that, you know, he did so at a time, obviously, when nobody knew the ending. Nobody knew how this was all going to turn out. And I started just wondering, you know, what would that have been like? What, what, would, what would my reaction have been? You know, if I saw Hitler, Hitler tool by in his open car one day while I was, you know, sitting at a table having, having, uh, having a cappuccino, you know, with Martha, <laughs> right. you know, what, what, would, what would my reaction be? Would I be thrilled? Would I be terrified? Or would it be just the most routine of things, you know? Well, so, well, so anyway, yeah. I was just going to say that's sort of the thing. We always like to imagine ourselves having... Uh, you know, uh, astute perceptions that we, you know, we would have seen it, but it's, you know, right. it's not that simple always. It's not that simple. Hey, in high school, I voted for Richard Nixon. <laughs> well, there you go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when, when it comes to uh, the character of William Dodd and, you know, like I, I see him, you know, and maybe this is just me projecting, uh, but, you know, he's this kind of, uh, you know, th- this uh, academic, he's a historian, he's sort of introspective, he doesn't necessarily fit the mold personality-wise, right. or in terms of his kind of uh, station in life. You know, the State, Depart- right. the State Department, as you describe it, is filled with a lot of, uh, a lot of old money, it seems like, right. and he, w- he was not that. Um, but, you know, I just thought that, you know, I guess because he's an, an, hist- an historian, um, and kind of uh, an unassuming guy. There's something sort of authorial about him. Did you feel a kinship with him at all, like as a character? Well, a kinship. Let, let, let me come back to that segment. Let me, let me just go back to um, the origins of this idea for a moment. Um, one of the things that I did after I had this, this you know, epiphany that I mentioned was that you know, I set about very deliberately trying to find characters. And one reason I really liked Dodd was because he was very much an outsider. He was an American outsider. He was very – he brought to Berlin – um, uh, what I would refer to as as a, as a willful a willful ignorance or a willful naivete. You know, he was hell bent on being objective at first, and you know what drew me to Martha. It was really it was when I came across her. Um, uh, you know, in the midst of reading many 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 memoirs and so forth, trying to find characters, when I came across her. She's the one who tipped the balance in favor of writing about the Dodds because of her her own brand of naivete and how weird that was. I mean, I was stunned to know that the 
the you know, the American ambassador to to Nazi Germany had a daughter who fell for the whole thing. Now, did I feel a kinship to Dodd? You know, I did on a sort of strange level. That is, you know, I, I could totally appreciate Dodd's being pulled by the demands of academia um, when really all he wanted to do um, at this point in his life was finish his own book, a history, a multi-volume history of the Old South, which, by the way, he entitled The Rise and Fall of the Old South, interestingly <laughs> enough. Interesting. So, so, so there he was, you know, this poor guy, he's, you know, he's, he's like 63 years old. And, you know, what he was really feeling at this point was that he had not achieved the level of recognition that he had certainly hoped to have achieved by now. And, you know, and I think that's why he was seduced into taking the job when Roosevelt offered it, because all logic would say, don't do it, because you'll never get that book done. But there was something about the honor, something about the loftiness of the position that I think really appealed to Dodd's vanity, and so he, so he took it. But, but, you know, the idea of trying to find time to write, I mean, it takes me back to earlier in my career. I mean, you know, it was, it was, it's, it's rough. Sure. And, uh, you know, I felt, a, I felt a real kinship to him on that level, and you know, I was kind of hoping that, that other, other readers, be they you know, want to be writers or professors or something would really resonate with, with that whole part of it, especially especially where Dodd writes this plaintive letter to the buildings and maintenance people at the University of Chicago, pleading for them to turn on the heat on Sundays so that he could actually write in his office at the University of Chicago. It just <laughs> seemed very pathetic to me. Any writer is going to be a sucker for that. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, um, and then in terms of your research process, uh, you know, because when you talk about finding time to write, I mean, it's one thing to find time to write, but uh, you've got this exhaustive research process that also goes into it. Uh, you know, it, it's it's an enormous amount of work, and to do it uh, to do it the right way, you know, you really have to dig in. So, how does it how does it go for you, uh, and, and how is it fed by your journalistic background? How is it said? I'm sorry. By your journalistic background, because I know you started, you know, you started off as a reporter, and I'm sure yeah. that probably informs how you approach your books. Well, I don't know. I mean, the 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 the, the, the journalistic element. If, if there's anything that from my journalistic past that I bring to the to the to the party now, really, it's an eye for detail, and that was I think honed when I worked in particular at the Wall Street Journal, where when I was there, you know, you could spend four, five, six weeks working on you know what we would refer to as a four-take story, that is to say, a four double-spaced typed page story, which is you know unheard of today, especially at the, at the Journal, frankly. So so. Um, you know the, the what what i what i really learned back then was to to really you know spend the time hunting for the little details that will make things come alive so if there's anything journalistic that i bring to what i do now that's that's really it mostly though what it is is that i mean i really i really get into the research because it's like i think i think i must have a certain amount of uh, of uh, you know uh, obsessive compulsive disorder because you know, when I latch on to something, um, I just, you know, I'm dogged and I don't feel bored. I mean, if I'm in the library and, you know, you know if I'm in the archives, you know, for example, working on, on this book and, and all I find that day uh, that's of any value is, is the, the clear plastic archival envelope in Martha's papers that contains two locks of Carl Sandburg's hair, you know, I mean, then I'm just like, whoa. That's great. You know, I go home happy. So, so, so I'm, I, you know, to me, every day is sort of like a, almost like a, uh, you know, kind of like a detective story. You know, I just, I really love it. There is, of course, a point where, where the research just gets old, you know, and that's when instinct, instinct tells me that, uh, you know, it's, it's time to start writing. 
Yeah. And uh, yeah, and that's that's when the segue starts to happen. So are you, I love the, I love the research. Yeah. Okay. So when you're doing the research, uh, yeah. Are you, you're? I mean, how do you stay organized? You know what I'm saying? Because I can see the archives and I can see sifting through books and I can see sifting through uh, Martha's, yeah. you know, uh, all of her papers and all of William's papers and stuff. But like, how do you how do you actually organize all of that into something yeah. that can then be translated into uh, a book length narrative? Well, it's very complicated um, and 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 entirely anal. But here, here's I'll try to give you a sense of of what happens. First of all, my my mo is to you know I'll I'll parachute into a into an archive like the Library of Congress, and you know instead of living in Washington D.C. for six months, right, reading every every piece of paper that I come across at the Library of Congress, I will read enough to 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 get the the impression that you know this might be valuable, right, and then I'll photograph it. And that's that's what people do, by the way. Now, when we do research, you use a digital camera. Um, it's easier on the materials. It's uh, it's cheaper, and uh, you know you can fuss with the with the image once you get home and make it as clear as you want. You know, so it's really you're you're, you're suddenly freed from the tyranny of the photocopy machine. Sure. So so I do that, and then what I do then is is you know I just I just I mean I just photocopy everything. You know, and so maybe at the end of a week, I will come away with a thousand pages of uh, or a thousand photographs of documents, right? And then I'll bring it home and I'll I'll process it and print them all out um, over time, and uh, then start then start start reading them. And uh, you know, it's then that you know I'll realize, of course, that um, gee, maybe only eighty percent of these are are worthwhile, but but still, it's eighty percent of a thousand. You know, it's eight hundred pages of documents. So, so there's that. But then, then what I do is, um, you know, each each collection of documents, depending how, on how I, I sort them, you know, but I will then um, I uh, I go through them all. I highlight, I, I annotate, I make an index for each particular document that has a a coded name, and and then <laughs> let me know if this gets too boring for you. But then um, on the you know before I actually start writing, I put. I put everything that I've got. I go through all my notes. I put everything into a massive chronology. Um, that is essentially everything. Everything that happened, like on you know June fifth, nineteen thirty-three, goes into the outline at that point in the chronology. Ditto for like June thirtieth, or you know for the morning of June thirtieth, you know because that was a pivotal day. And so by the end of the process, I have this chronology of maybe a hundred, you know who knows, hundred and hundred to one hundred and fifty um, single spaced pages that are essentially a chronology containing a coded a coded reference that will steer me directly to the particular detail or quote. Wow. And yeah, and, and, and but the beauty of that is and I and actually I stole that from the cops. I used to when I maybe this is another another thing that journalism, you know, gave me and I'll always be very glad about. But early on I would I was uh, I, I spent half my time in my first newspaper writing about uh, crime. What I learned early on is that cops always homicide cops always put together what's referred to as a murder book and that is the uh, the uh, detailed precise chronology that they collect during the investigation so that everything goes in its perfect place. So I simply adapted that to, to, to doing my books. And the beauty of it is, you know, the, 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 the most powerful element of story is chronology, if you ask me. Um, and suddenly, if I have this constructed this chronology, I have a de facto outline. You know, I mean, I know where everything is, and I also know what the arc of the story is going to be. And, and when you look at this, this outline visually, I mean, when you just, you know, 
take a look, when you thumb through it, you see where the natural chapters and chapter breaks and so forth are going to be because you see suddenly things become very clear. Like, you know, if you have two stories running along like Martha and Dodd, you see that on a particular day each is doing something different, right? Mm-hmm. And that's very powerful. If you know that it happened on the same day, you can cut from one to the other and you can, you can insert suspense and you can withhold information and so forth. So, so that chronology is my, my single most valuable weapon. Hey everybody, real quick, just want to give another plug to today's sponsor, Audible.com, and to remind you that you can get titles by today's guest, Eric Larson, over at Audible.com, and better yet, you can get a freebie. You can get a free audiobook download of In the Garden of Beasts by Eric Larson by going to audiblepodcast.com slash other people. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash other people. They've got lots of other titles by Eric Larson, including Isaac Storm, Thunderstruck, and The Devil in the White City, go get one of them for free at audiblepodcast.com slash other people. Thanks so much, and now back to the program. Now, and what about, uh, you know, obviously you're, you're doing uh, library research, but what about travel? I mean, are you, I, I assume you were in Germany and did some oh, yeah, on, yeah. on the ground research too. Yeah, yeah. You have to go to the seat of the crime. You know, I, I kind of I get a kick out of when, you know, I've, I've, had, I've had people... You know, probably, probably every other time I speak, somebody asks me and says, "Well, when I did the, the book Devil in the White City, did I go to Chicago?" You know, and it's like, yes, of course. <laughs> and you know, it's the same. It's the same with same with Berlin. Although, you know, I, I actually had expected to have to spend an awful lot of time in Berlin, which would not be a chore. I love Berlin. It was a very, very interesting city. But what I realized was that um, what I needed out of Berlin was really more more on the sort of physical sense of, of, of where everything was at the time, um, as opposed to, you know, spending years in the Bundesarchive and so forth, because, you know, it became a very, very much an American book, an American perceptions of what was happening. So really all I did um, when I was in Berlin was spend a lot of time you know, just kind of soaking up atmosphere, walking to places, you know, looking at the, the Gestapo headquarters wall of terror. You know, nothing remains of the building, but except for one one subterranean wall of the so-called house prison. That was the basement prison of the Gestapo headquarters. And along that wall, there was this wonderful but really scary um, chronological um, uh, uh, photographic account of the rise of terror in, in Nazi Germany. And it's very chilling. It's, it's partly outside, partly inside. Very interesting arrangement. Yeah. I mean, anyway, I, I, yeah. Well, I was going to say, like, with regard to Berlin, I've, I've been, I passed through on a train once, but I didn't really spend any, any time there. Like, what is it, you know, how do they handle that part of their history? You know what I'm saying? So much of it I've heard is, is kind of gone, but there, there's obviously, yeah. um, there obviously are some uh, remembrances somehow, or, or how does it work? Yeah. Especially the dark stuff. <clears throat> Well, you know, there's an odd mix of uh, there's an odd mix in Germany, I think, of denial and 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 acceptance, and not just acceptance, but you know, willingness to to reveal, you know, how much um, how much you know reveal the true depth of of of, of what happened. You know, there, everywhere you go, there's a plaque that commemorates some aspect of you know some Nazi Nazi atrocity. But what I found most interesting when I was there. The thing that infuses the book, if you ask me, but it may not be evident to readers, but the thing that just just really really um, was invaluable and 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 is why 
is why you have to go, no matter what the story, what, what the subject, you have to go to the scene of the crime, if you will, because you never know what you'll, you'll discover. And the thing that I found that, that, that in, in informs the entire work is the fact that everything was walking distance from everything else. That, you know, Dodd could walk out of his house on Tiergartenstrasse, and in 15 minutes he could be at Gestapo headquarters. In 15 walking. In 15 or 20 minutes he could cut across the park, he, he could be at the Reichstag. You know, 15, 20 minutes he could be at, at one of Hitler's various offices. And for some reason that was very important to know. Like everything took place around this, in this one fairly tight um, eastern quarter of the Tiergarten, the, the Central Park in Berlin, and you know, hence the title of the book. You know, I mean, in the Garden of Beasts, Garden of Beasts being a literal translation of uh, Tiergarten. So, so it was very, very important. Now, and then what about uh, like you know, you've got library research, you've got travel, and then uh, what about video or uh, you know, f- f- photographs of the of the the time and, and actually getting to see yeah. these people? Like, how important is that for you when you're when you're trying to kind of access uh, at the level of imagination, you know, these right, people right. in these places doing these things. Well, photographs are very important because, and, and, you know, what I do is I treat the photographs not so much as photographs. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I hope I can make this clear. Not so much as photographs, you know, interesting visual, blah, blah, blah. But I treat them as sources of documentary information that you might not find elsewhere. For example, you know, I came across a number of photographs of Potsdamer Platz, which is sort of a central area in the vicinity of this, um, you know, in this area where all the action in my book takes place. And, you know, I just go through these photographs, you know, I, I, I acquire these photographs one way or another, and I, I, I look at them very closely with a magnifying glass to see what was there. You know, if I know that this picture was taken in June of 1933, it's very powerful because because then I can say things about that square that happened in June. You know, that that might elude me in some other textual material. For example, you know, if there's a if there was if there's a bus stopped in front of you know the Romanisches Cafe or something, and and uh, you know I can read the, what's on the bus. Uh, like let's say it's advertising a movie. Well, that's very powerful. That's very powerful in terms of bringing that that moment to life. So photographs are very valuable in that respect. Video, interestingly, has become um, kind of a compelling sort of side element to to my research. And and by video, I'm referring to, of course, to to YouTube. I mean, you know, um, much to my surprise, you can, I don't know why I was surprised, but I was, you can go to YouTube, type in Berlin 1933 or Berlin 1934, and up will come, you know, video footage shot, you know, um, uh, in in those those eras of things happening in Berlin. And, you know, that also is is very, very powerful. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a new one. YouTube is is surprisingly great with that that kind of stuff there's a lot of archival yeah. footage that somehow found its way up you know well yeah you always wonder though what what was that means by which it found its way up yeah but you know it's best not to ask too many questions yeah no i mean i just i think about that all the time like just any video practically or any old television show like who are the people who have these on tape first of all and then secondly if they're if they're just like random individuals who are who you know who, who's putting these things up spending all that time you know, i know i know it's very strange so here's a question I have, uh, you know, after reading the book and thinking about this stuff, not only in, with regard to your book, uh, but just in general from a historical perspective, uh, when you got through this entire process, did you have any better insight into Hitler and the Nazis and, and Hitler in particular and his, you know, and his, and his executives? Like, yeah. were, were these people always this nuts were they always this crazy or did did you did you feel that they 
that they actually flipped at some point, you know, once no, they took I, power? Yeah. Well, you know, it depends on the level of, of the government. I, th- I think at the top level, Hitler, Goering, Goebbels, uh, Himmler, and Heydrich, um, they were they were nuts to begin with. Um, they were they were evil to the core. They didn't reveal it early on, but but you know, I, I think that they were actually, as as Dodd's consul general, you know, reported to the State Department in a confidential dispatch. Um, before the Dodds even arrived, he said that you know the top three guys, uh, Hitler, uh, Gary, and Goebbels, um, uh, in any other you know any other culture or time would be in an asylum receiving treatment. You know, so he got it. He understood that this was this was this was organic pathology. These people were nuts. However, what what compounds the thing? I mean, if 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 if, if my sense of this period, you know, I, I think the thing that that really struck me was. I understand. I, 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 people today um, use the term appeasement. Politicians use the term appeasement very, very blithely, you know, and 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 historic with 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 great historic inaccuracy, you know, because one of the things that you come away with, you know, this is this certainly what I felt when I was you know delving into this, is that is that 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 period um, was very very complicated. Very complicated. I mean, you had on the one hand, you had the British who did not, at all costs, that did not want to have another war. I mean, they had lost a generation of young men. No joke. I mean, it, you know, literally had lost a generation of young men. The miasma of grief still lay over Britain at this time. The last thing they wanted was war. Um, United States, similar position for different reasons. Um, you know, um, Roosevelt really wanted to to rescue America from the Great Depression. He had these tremendous, potentially volatile political opponents. I mean, you have this this morass of things, these forces coming to play on this period. And uh, you know, it's just it just it it, it was the thing that struck me is that everything was so nuanced, so. You know, so unexpected. For example, in the lower levels of Hitler's government, I mean, Dodd actually found people who were really quite moderate, and that's what kind of gave him hope. He believed, as did many, that Hitler and company could not survive because they were simply too crazy. He put his hopes in in people like uh, the foreign minister von Dureth, who, during one, I thought, really sort of touching moment, they had a private dinner, private lunch in in an out-of-the-way restaurant, during which Dureth confessed to really kind of hoping that Hitler one day, you know, one day he'd wake up and Hitler would be gone. Um, this is the foreign minister under Hitler. So, uh, so there were so many forces at, at work at that time, and it's hard to piece anything, any one thing out. And I guess the only conclusion I reached was, wow, there's a lot of nuance, a lot of warts, you know, no heroes, but wow, it's interesting. Well, yeah, no, and you say that something that strikes me is that, like, you know, this this kind of. Uh you know the easy use of the word appeasement which basically yeah. which basically has come to mean anything other than like immediate attack you know? right if you don't if you don't drop a bomb immediately you're appeasing which i think right. is, that's a little simple you know well yeah yeah but that's exactly how it's used it's just such a blithe usage it's it's, it's incredible well and then what about like an assassination uh of hitler because i want to say i was uh, listening to you talk or was or was <laughs> reading something that you uh, had written about your your assessment of William Dodd's ambassadorship, and you give him reasonably high marks, but you say that you know the, one of the things that could have tipped it was if he had, uh, you know, uh, found a way to assassinate Hitler or, or actually. Well, well, what, well, well, what, what I was, I, I think, what you're referring to is, you know, you know, you know, I, I, I mean, I see Dodd 
I see God as as in 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 a much better light than historians have tended to see him. He tends to have gotten short shrift, I think, because because you know the conventional wisdom says, oh, he was he was he was you know this mild mannered guy. He shouldn't have been an ambassador. This sort of drinking the Kool Aid, as far as Dodd is concerned, and moving on to the good stuff. When I say good stuff, what I mean is you know historically the you know the advent of war and and, and so forth. But when you look at one of the beauties of uh, I think of, of of thin slice history, that is you know opening a particular small window on a time and looking at it in tremendous depth. Um, I think you I think you have to I think one has to in, in this case I think you have to to reappraise Dodd um, because you know he did firstly he did exactly what Roosevelt wanted him to do which was to serve as a standing model of American liberal values Dodd to his immense credit did not kowtow to the Nazis which his successor after he was kicked out of after Dodd was kicked out of his, his uh, out of office his successor was very sympathetic to the Nazis you know as astonishing as, as, as that may seem but the other thing about Dodd is that, you know, anybody who, I mean, this is my view, anybody who had earned the eternal hatred of the Nazi hierarchy, as Dodd did, must have done something right. Right. You know, for them to mock him on his deathbed in New York when he hadn't had anything to do with Berlin for a long time, it, you know, says something really, really good about Dodd. That's right. Well, sort of as a, a counterpoint, um, or, or kind of a, along a similar line, you know, one of the things that I was struck by repeatedly is uh, the way that uh, anti-Semitism uh, seemed to be so pervasive, you know, like depressingly pervasive during that period, not only among the Nazis, but uh, in the world at large, in an American culture. You know, there's a lot of callous talk about the Jews, you know, and, right. and there's different, you know, obviously different um, levels of intensity when it comes to that sort of stuff. But right, right. Do, do, you, do you have a sense as to as to why that was or how that cultural um, well, treatment you know, of the Jews happened? Yeah. Well, first, of all, first of all, you know, you have to sort of. There were, there were, for lack of a better way to describe it, there were gradients. <clears throat> there were gradients of of anti-Semitism in in America. Um, I was really startled to find that the top three operating guys below the level of Secretary of State in the State Department were really outright anti-Semites in in a very virulent way. One routinely described Jews in his diaries as kikes. You know, I mean, that's that's uh, that's pretty that's pretty out there. I, I would think, especially for guys who are. Essentially, the guys who are who are the architects of American immigration policy with regard to Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany, but then there's this sort of—it's hard to—it's hard to describe. It's sort of a almost an ambient anti-Semitism, or this is going to sound really strange, almost a, a, a compassionate anti-Semitism. You know, like like kind of like what Dodd exhibited. On the one hand, you know, he would. Yeah, he, for example, he, he, he during his tenure in Berlin, he, he at one point wrote a confidential dispatch to uh, to the State Department uh, complaining that he had too many Jews on his staff, right? Um, and then at another point, he has a meeting with Hitler um, in uh, March of 1934, where he tries to find common ground with Hitler on the so-called Jewish problem. And when I say compassion and anti-Semitism, here, here's, here's what I mean. Here's Dodd, who, who, who was a very moral guy and would no sooner do something awful to a, a Jewish person than he would, you know, um, beat his horse, you know. Um, um, but there he was talking about how, you know, Americans have, uh, 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 you know, America has its own, its own Jewish problem, but has been trying to solve it in a more 
more humane way, you know, and what he's referring to as quotas and so forth. So it's a very strange mix of, 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 of you know, virulent anti-Semitism in America and this kind of background thing that, uh, that exists today, by the way. I mean, you know, so, so in 1933, um, and which is very early in the science of uh, public opinion polling, um, you know, a poll done showed that, um, I think it was 33, it might have been um, somewhere in the, in the early 30s, showed that some, uh, some uh, 30, 30 plus percent of Americans felt that Jews had too much power. And uh, you know, another 20 some percent felt that Jews should be sent back where they came from. Um, and that's a number, by the way, that the polling has continued annually um, ever since. And, and, and last year, I believe, the, uh, the total uh, of, of Americans who felt Jews had too much power was 13%, 1-3%. So, so, you know, it's, it's a vast improvement from, from 30, you know, 30, mid-30%. But still, it's, it's 13% of an entire country. You know, that's an awful lot of, of this kind of low-grade and, and maybe not so low-grade anti-Semitism. Yeah. Well, I mean, so what did you, I mean, uh, having gone through the process of writing this, you know, another thing that I read about you uh, or about you with respect to this book is that it, you actually suffered uh, some degree of depression. You know? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, this was unusual for me because, you know, and, and, and you know, again, I guess we're harking back to, to my, my journalist days. You know, when, you, when you're trained as a journalist, you come to appreciate the, the, the human power of events, but you also, that's, that's one side of it, but the other part of you also appreciate that yeah, God, this is great stuff. You know what I mean? Sure. There's always that. There's always that bifurcation, and so it was with all my all my previous books. But with this book, uh, in the Garden of Beasts, there was something about it. And I, I think what it is is that you know, first of all, in order to say anything new or say anything at all, you really have to you really have to do a lot of reading because you don't want to say something stupid. You know what I mean? Sure. So, you know, the barriers to entry, if you will, are very high. So you've got to read, 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 read. So, you know, essentially spending, um, spending four years, 40 hours a week steeped in Nazi pathology takes its toll on you, you know? <laughs> there is something uniquely, uniquely, inexplicably evil about that, that era. And, and I think that's part of the attraction to people. You know, it is just so unfathomable, so, uh, it's so impossible to plumb those depths that, that it's, that it's, that it's it, it's immeasurably um, attractive to, to to readers. At the same time, me as a writer, it did take a toll. I mean, by the end of the book, I was dealing with what you know my wife would describe as a, as a low grade depression, um, and uh, you know I, I had never really experienced that with a with a, a book before. But I'm glad to say that when the book was done, that depression lifted in a heartbeat. Hmm. Well, and you know you like. It makes me think what you're talking about, you know, the, just kind of like the bottomless evil of these people, like the, the, the meetings that Dodd, that William Dodd had with Hitler, to me, are some of the most interesting and affecting scenes to portray, because there you have the, this sort of innocent abroad actually standing eye to eye with Hitler. Right. You know? right. Like, can you talk, oh, yeah, a little, talk a little bit about those meetings and how they went? Well, uh, yeah, back to the second meeting. I mean, that's the one where Dodd tries to find uh, common ground with, with Hitler. And what was striking about that, and this is where I think that, that, that Roosevelt maybe actually made kind of, a, kind of a decent choice in Dodd. I don't think Dodd at all was what, what Roosevelt set out initially to, to the kind of person Roosevelt set out initially to choose. But once Dodd's name came up, I think suddenly Roosevelt thought, yeah, you know, this might be just just what we need, but there you know there there Dodd was in that meeting, and really um you know 
he was treating Hitler essentially as, as a professor would treat a graduate student, you know, so, which I find very, very charming really, <laughs> in, in its way. And, and, you know, and if Tom Hanks ever comes through on, 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 the, on the movie for this, um, I wonder how that scene's going to play out, if, if it's going to play out at all. But, well, wait, now, we, but, should, we should say he, Tom Hanks did actually option, his production yes. company did option this book. Yes, correct. Okay. Correct. I can see him. I can see him playing William Dodd. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's what he wants to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. So, so um, anyway, yeah. Well, do you think that there's a hero in the book? I mean, do you find? Do you? Do you I mean, obviously, there are some characteristics or some aspects of William Dodd that um, you know are, are laudable. But do, do, when you're writing it, do you see him as the hero in a, in a traditional sense? Or yeah, well, you know, um, there are no no heroes in this book in you know in the hollywood sense i mean you know some readers uh, point to george messersmith as a feisty uh, consul general they, they think he was he behaved in fairly fairly heroic manner even though he coveted dodd's job and you know trying to undermine him and all that stuff but you know I, in life there, there, there rarely are um uh you know unalloyed uh, unalloyed heroes. You know, people who behave in heroic fashion also have an awful lot of warts. There's a lot of nuance, as I said. So really, really, there were people who behaved in this book um, at times with um, a certain amount of, of 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 heroism, but who were not necessarily classic heroes in, in the Hollywood sense. For example, Dodd, with you know, during the Night of the Long Knives, that just that just you know, savage um, purge by by Hitler, you know, that may have killed up to 700 members of the Reich government and armed forces and so forth. Um, you know, one of those targets was a, a General Schleicher, who was uh, who was one of Dodd's, uh, well, if not friends, at least someone he knew on a social basis and counted, and he was somewhat friendly toward. And he took steps to make sure that uh, to make sure that Schleicher uh, survived the purge, and may in fact have been instrumental in Schleicher's survival of the purge. So there are little things, lots of little things, but nothing, you know, going back to the assassination thing, I mean, I mean, uh, if I had been writing this as a novel, right, you know, what would be really nice is to have Don go into that second meeting with a revolver and blow Hitler away, <laughs> right? But it's just, you know, it's just, it just, that kind of thing was not going to happen. So have you ever thought of writing fiction? You know, you've done nonfiction uh, exclusively here. You know, I, I, I have tried my hand at fiction in the past. And, uh, you know, I have, I have like four complete novels in various drawers in my house, you know, but, but it, the, the problem for me is that at each point when I was like ready to go with a novel, my, uh, my, my nonfiction career would take a big leap, right? And, you know, I just didn't want to have some mediocre thing come out there, you know, under my, my name, you know? And what I found also is that I'm not sure... I mean, I, I love what I do now. I love this, but I'm not sure that I have the uh, the, the essential temperament, the uh, the uh, you know novelist sensibility to do a really effective good novel. And that is, you have to visit all kinds of hell on your favorite characters <laughs> for a book to be you know a, a compelling book. You got to make their lives miserable. You got to do bad things to them. You know, when they jump off a, a, a dock, you got to have them paralyzed. You know, if they walk across the field, like the the, the lovely bones, they got to be murdered. You know, that kind of stuff. Right. And I can't do it. 
whereas real life, you know, provides all that stuff in spades. And, and, and uh, you know, I just have to go with what I've got. You know, well, and, it's, it's and there, not hard. And there does seem to be a commonality. There are, there's lots of, you know, you seem to have a fascination with the dark side of human nature. Is that fair to say? You know, I mean? Well, the dark, the dark side is, is where the compelling stories are. Yeah. But it's just uh, you know, I'm thinking of uh, Devil in the White City. And, sure, you know. but 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 Devil in the White City. You know, really, you know, in terms of dark stories. Okay, yes, there was the uh, the serial killer narrative that ran ran through the book, but but really, that was juxtaposed against this really tremendous act of civic goodwill. Will right. you know, the creation of the of the 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 White City, and it's that I think that had the most resonance with with readers. You know, the serial killer was the French fry. You know. Yeah, and the, and the World's Fair part of the story was really sort of the the thing. That um, you know, people really, really wanted to wanted to devour in the end. I mean, that's the thing that drew them. I think into you know, the, the, I think people came to the book with the idea that oh, good, you know, another serial killer story. For some reason, people really like serial killer stories. Those <laughs> that is who have never encountered a serial killer feel that way. Of course, of but course. but uh, but it, you know, what, what I hear repeatedly from readers is that it was the fair that ultimately seduced them. It's the fair that really really uh, made them love the era and, and, and the book happily. Yeah. Well, and with regard to the, uh, in the garden of beasts, um, you know, I guess like the, the overriding question that it, it leaves you with is, uh, you know, how do we guard against something like this happening again? Right. You know, right. Like how do we, how do we evaluate? Like, do you have a sense of how, um, the book might have been, might inform you going forward, or how you. you well, know. you know, I guess the most important thing is, you know, I, I, I don't want to be politically too incendiary here, but, but you know, I guess the important thing is, you know, when when you hear people speaking stupidities, right? Maybe it's important to stand up and say, you know, no offense, but you are being stupid. You know what I mean? I mean, when people are when people when people um, liken Obama to Hitler because of his wish that everybody has access to health care, that, that, that's crazy talk. It's crazy talk, and and people need to be told that they are being crazy. Well, I I can get on board with that for sure. <laughs> and uh, Eric, I, I I thank you so much for your time. It's been great talking with you. Congratulations on the success of the book, and uh, you know, good luck with the rest of the tour as well. All right. Thank you very much. All right, you guys. There you go. That is Eric Larson. Go get his book. It is called In the Garden of Beast. It's a number one New York Times bestseller now available in paperback. And I should say that I might have misspoken on the front end of the show. I don't know if it was number one for 35 weeks uh, on the New York Times list, but I do know that it was on the list for 35 weeks, and it did hit number one. So there's a clarification. You can find Eric on the uh, internets at ericlarsonbooks.com. He's also on the Twitter at EX Larson. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. Go follow it. I'm on Twitter at Brad Listy. You can follow me. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music, as always. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks once again to today's sponsor, audible.com. Don't forget to go get your free audiobook. Go get In the Garden of Beasts by Eric Larson. It's free. You can download it. To do that, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash other people. It's a special offer for listeners of this program. It's simple. It's a free audiobook. It's wonderful. You can listen to a book. Uh, otherwise, what's happening? I'm starting to fade a little bit. I'm starting to get a little bit... Uh, scatterbrained. I can feel it in my cranium. My blood sugar is plummeting. The caffeine is starting to wear off. My heart rate is receding. And so I think I might go outside 
and run around a little bit to uh, reinvigorate things and to try to atone for my sins. Please remember that Miles Davis died in Santa Monica, California, and that Balzac's first mistress was 22 years his senior and had seven children. Thank you, as always, for listening. I certainly appreciate it. I will be back again soon uh, with more uh, conversations between writers and whatnot for you to uh, hopefully enjoy. And uh, otherwise, I don't know what to say. I think this is it. Uh, I'm in your brain, and now I'm leaving your brain. Here goes.